I'm going to begin with a, with a letter. This letter was written by a Southern Baptist missionary to Iraq. Her name is Karen Watson. Prior to leaving for the Middle East, she wrote this letter. And the letter is dated March 7th in 2003. Karen was killed along with four other missionaries on March 15, 2004. So about a year before she passed away, she wrote this letter. And I think it's appropriate for where we're going to look at our text this morning. Here's the letter. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should be only opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart to the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I am writing this as if I am still working with my people group. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and my spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regard to any service, keep it small and keep it simple. Yes, simply, just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. The missionary heart, give more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Accept more than some think is possible. I was not called to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too, and my church family, in his care, Salam, Karen Watson. Man, I don't know how that letter affects you, but it sure touches my heart in a deep and mighty and a powerful way that this woman, at the age of 38, would sell all of her possessions because she knew the value of the message of the gospel of Christ to go to the Middle East and to give her life for a cause beyond herself is just something beautiful. When I read stories like that, it's like, you know what, Lord, that's, that's what I want for my life. I, I want to live a life of obedience like that. I want to know who you are, and I, I want to have that rock-solid faith that when, when I'm going about my daily business, I'm going to live and walk in obedience to you, and I'm going to be courageous, and I'm going to lay it all on the line for you because of who you are and what you've done. This is an incredibly beautiful testimony from a woman who knew the cost, counted the cost, and responded in obedience to the call of serving Jesus in a mighty and powerful way. And she lost her life at the age of 38 in the Middle East. So I I share that testimony, that letter with you, because I I think that it provides an appropriate background, backdrop for for the text that we're going to look at this morning from the book of Colossians. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 24 to 27. And, and I believe what we have here is this. I, I think what, what Paul has done in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, he has given us an absolutely beautiful picture of the supremacy of who Jesus is in all aspects of life. And, and now as he, as he looks 
and reflects on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He said, okay, now here's the application for my life. Here's the life of Jesus. Here's the supremacy in all things. And now what I need to do is I need to respond. And he gives the people at Colossae, he gives them a picture, a model, an example of his very life, of how he lived his life among them. Even though he'd never been there, even though he probably never met these people, he became a model, an example to ministry. What we know so far in the book of Colossians is this, that that I want us to have this concept, this idea of of looking up. That's, That's why we have these wristbands here. When you're going about your week and life is difficult and life is challenging, I I want us all to be able to look up. And that theme is based upon Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Since then, you've been raised up with Christ. Set Set your heart on the things above where Christ is, seated to the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will be with him in glory. That is absolutely phenomenal for you and I and the way that we should live and the way that we should look up. We've been raised up with Jesus. I'm on this earth, but I've been raised up with Jesus. And what Paul wanted to do to the people of Colossae is he wanted to give them this wonder, this beautiful picture of who God is and who Jesus is and how they can live their lives in the midst of utter chaos. So a man by the name of Epaphras, he left, he left his home and he traveled 1,300 miles, found Paul in a Roman prison. And he went up and, and he sat down with Paul and he and others, they sat down together and, and Epaphras began to say, Paul, let me tell you about the church. Let, let me tell you about the people of Colossae. Let me, let me tell you about what's going on in their lives. And they talked about the spiritual health of the church. And Paul says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to write a letter to the people of Colossae, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them instructions on how they can live in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of some of the false teaching that's going on all around them. I'm going to help them. And that's what we have in this absolutely wonderful and this beautiful book. So Paul began the book saying, listen, I I want to give you thanks. So he began with an, an attitude of thankfulness. And then he says, okay, by the way, not only do I give thanks, but, but I've been praying for you as a church body. I've been praying for you. Even though I've not seen you, I've been praying for you. And then in verses 15 to 20, he talks about the supremacy of Christ. Thanks, prayer, supremacy of Christ. Now, let me show you the way that I live. I'm going to give you an example of how to live the life of Jesus out in the midst of all of this chaos and stuff. So let me read the word of God to us this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all of its fullness. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but has now been disclosed to the saints. Verse 27. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Don't miss that verse. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Beautiful verse. We proclaim him, admonishing him, 
and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present every person perfect, mature in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all of the energy which so powerfully works in me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the wonder and the beauty of the word of God, the privilege we have to be able to gather this morning and to read it and to study it. And Father, to reflect on people like the Apostle Paul, whose life was radically transformed and gave himself to you. And Father, I know at the core of who we are, we, we want to we follow Jesus. We want to love Jesus. We want to emulate his life. We want to walk with him. So, Father, I pray that the word of God through the spirit of God would speak to us, that you'd open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things from your word about how to live, and, Father, how for us to be as a church. Father, I ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when you look at these verses, you read words such as this, I rejoice, I fill up. I have become, I labor. In other words, what we have is, is Paul is kind of moving into a, a personal testimony about how he lived his life and how he lived his life among all of the people, a, a testament example of his life. And, and what he did was he understood his call, his commission, his stewardship as a follower of Christ. And, and what he's doing, he's, he's giving us an example of, of what a minister should be like, uh, maybe what a pastor should be like, maybe what a, a, a missionary should be like. So on one level, we have this, this, this testimony, this, this wonderful word of God to pastor, teachers, leaders, elders, things like that. But on another level, it's about us in the body of Christ. In other words, what are some things that we should be focusing on, how we should be living in the body of Christ? And I think he's going to outline that here. And he's going to talk about four characteristics of a pastor, maybe of an elder, of a missionary, of people in the church about how we should live. Endure, be a good steward, grow labor, and give thanks. That's where we're going. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 talks about for us as pastors, ministers, teachers, we need to endure. Now, I want you to think back to the life of Jesus. Think about the earthly life of Jesus and the role that he had with the disciples, or the, those 12. Over and over, he modeled ministry to them. He modeled what he needed to do. And over and over, he told them this one message. Listen, you're going to be hated and you're going to be persecuted. They don't like me, they're going to not like you. They're going to hate me, they're going to persecute you. And even one of Jesus' intimate friends wrote specifically about that persecution that they were going to experience. John chapter 15. Notice what John wrote. And, and he's recording the, the words of Jesus. Notice what he writes. He says this, remember, Jesus is speaking, remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they have obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And we know that every one of them, except John, died a martyr's death. All of them gave their lives. The early church, these people gave their life for the specific call of Jesus in their lives. I said persecution is still true today. You can talk about almost any other religion, but you can't talk about Christianity and Christ. You can hand out almost any other book out there, but you cannot hand out the Bible. The name of Jesus becomes so offensive to people. They don't like the name of Jesus. They don't like who he is. And they don't like what he represented and what he talked about. And, and what Paul was reminding the people of Colossae is, listen, you need to endure. 
You need to be strong enough in your faith. You need to be courageous enough in your faith to be able to endure when life gets difficult and life gets challenging, when they begin to persecute you for the things that you believe about Jesus and the way that you would live your life about Jesus. And what we know from Paul is that he endured a lot of suffering. Over and over the Bible, Paul writes about how much he suffered. Look at verse 24 again. And what Paul does is he makes an interesting statement about suffering. Verse 24 says this, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. So now we know from the book of Acts, and we know from other letters that Paul was a man who suffered greatly. At some point, he even said, listen, I despaired even of life. I think I'm going to die. That's how much he had suffered. Over and over, there are lists of how often and how deeply Paul suffered in the Bible. So so what is Paul saying here in verse 20? Is is he saying, listen, that, that, that my suffering, my suffering, the physical suffering that I'm going, I'm providing something that was lacking the sufferings of Christ? In other words, is he saying this, that somehow, in some way, the sufferings of Christ did not fully pay for my sin, our sin on the cross? Is is that what he's talking about here? And and if if that's true, then is Paul saying, listen, then I'm going to have to suffer more and more because I persecuted the church? And what about you and I? Does that mean you and I have to suffer in such a way to make up for what was lacking on the cross in Jesus' afflictions? Is trusting Jesus only enough, or do I need to do something else? Listen, if you go to chapter 2 and read through chapter 2, what Paul is going to tell the people is, listen, it's not Jesus and something else. It's not Jesus and do this. It's not Jesus and eat this. It's not Jesus and do this festival. It's not Jesus and don't touch this. It's not Jesus and all of these other things. There's not this mystery thing that we can get in touch with where we're going to advance and we're going to advance the call of Christ and we're going to grow deeper and mature and we're going to feel this sense of essence with Jesus on a deeper, more intimate level. He's saying, no, it's only Jesus and Jesus only. So when Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 24, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction, he's not talking about Jesus' death on the cross as being insufficient. What he's talking about is the lack of understanding, the lack of need to understand and know what the death of Jesus was all about. People still don't want to know and believe and understand what the death of Jesus was all about. Paul is saying, listen, I identify in who Jesus is in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. I have died with Christ. I have been raised up with Christ. My life is hidden with Christ. My life is all about the person of Jesus. And when they persecute me, in some way they are persecuting Jesus. Recall, if you will, when Paul, prior to his conversion, was persecuting the church. Remember, he's going from city to city, town to town, and he had these papers, and he'd go into the synagogue. He'd say, I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to pull you. I'm going to grab you. I'm going to persecute you. Some of you are even going to die. Remember that? Acts chapter 9, Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus, and his life was radically changed. But listen to the dialogue between him and Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verse 4 says this. We read of Paul's response in his conversion. He, Paul fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Wait a minute, who is Paul persecuting? The believers in the church. The the family of God, he was persecuting the people in the church, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. What he's saying is, listen, Paul, Paul in persecuting the followers of Jesus, persecuting those disciples, was actually persecuting the body of Christ, the family of God, Jesus. There's such a close intimacy. There's such a close identification between you and I, our faith, being raised up with Christ, being hidden with God in Christ. There's such this intimate connection that when we persecute, when people persecute us, they're actually persecuting the body of Christ and they're persecuting Jesus. And what is lacking is this understanding of the, of the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what we would do in going to serve him and honor him and glorify him for who he is, that at times we will face that same type of persecution. What is lacking is an understanding of why Jesus came to earth. Remember on the cross, the religious leaders the religious leaders, right? They're mocking Jesus saying, come down from the cross and then we will believe in you. In other words, they wanted a Messiah that didn't have to die on the cross for their sin. Come down, save yourself from the cross. They didn't want a a Messiah that would come and die and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. What is lacking is a need to understand who Jesus is and what he would come and do for us. Listen, you can't be religious without the cross got to have Jesus. That's why people don't like that we proclaim Jesus, life, death, burial, and resurrection, the narrow way. We can't eliminate Jesus and his suffering on the cross for what? For your sin and my sin. That's ultimately why Jesus came to this earth. First John chapter 3, verse 5, notice what he wrote. But you know that he appeared. Why did Jesus arrive? Why did he come on the scene? He appeared so that he might take away sin. How do you get rid of sin? You go to the cross and offer yourself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sin. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for my sin. And people don't know and understand that and they want to get rid of it. They don't understand the need to know about Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. You know what Paul called that in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 18, notice what he wrote. And this is still true today. I believe this is still true today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, what it is the power of God to salvation. The message of the cross of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection for sin that you and I now experience. Listen, we have to be able to be ready to endure persecution When we talk about sin, when we talk about the holiness of God, when we talk about the righteousness of God, when we talk about the nature and the character of who Jesus is and what he's come to tell and reveal to us, when we start talking about those things, it does make people feel comfortable because nobody wants to deal with their sin. And when we faithfully proclaim that there is a God that has called us to be accountable to him, we will face persecution for what we state and believe. So number one, are you ready for persecution? Are you ready for suffering? We as individuals, we as a church need to be ready for that. We need to endure in suffering. Number two is this. Paul says, listen, I I have a stewardship 
entrusted to me. I, I, I have a responsibility now. I, I have a, a calling on my life of God. Look at verses 25 to 27. Notice what Paul says. I have become its servant. What servant? Well, I'm a servant of the body of Christ. Uh, I, I'm a servant to the church by the commission God gave to me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Listen, Paul, prior to his conversion, he he was a good Jew. He was a faithful Jew. He was a righteous Jew. He had grown up in a wonderful, wonderful family. He'd grown up around the synagogue. He'd grown up around Jewish people. He was taught the law by Gamaliel. Here was a man who had everything with regard to his religious upbringing. He was a man who was actually zealous for God. That's why he was going about persecuting all of these Christians because he thought he was zealous for God, serving God, doing what God wanted him to do. In the book of Philippians, he says this, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's his way of saying that, listen, I I am where I need to be. I'm a diehard Jewish person. We might call it this way. I am a I'm a diehard Cardinals fan, right? I I bleed Cardinal red is what we would say. That's what he's talking about here. Prior to his conversion, he's saying, listen, I did all of these wonderful things for the synagogue, for the people of God. Then he went through a radical change. Acts chapter 9, he went through an absolutely radical change. He went through such a radical change that people didn't want to be around him. Remember Ananias? Reminding the Lord, uh, Lord, do you remember this guy? He's a pretty bad guy. He's going around, he's going around and he's taking people and he's persecuting them and he's throwing them in jail. And God reminded Ananias, no, he's, he's my chosen instrument. I've got a call on his life. Even though he's a persecutor, even though he's a murderer, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a call in his life. That's, that's the grace of God in his life. And and on that day, Paul knew and understood that he had been commissioned to a stewardship in verse 25. He had been given a commission by the Lord to be a servant of the church, to be a a, a steward. The the idea behind the word commission is this. It's a steward. He'd been given a a, a responsibility. Think back to Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember, he's a house steward, and what does he do? He's a house steward, but he faithfully does his job. And then when he gets thrown in prison, what does he do? He faithfully does his job in prison. No matter where he was at, he was going to be a faithful steward of what God had called him to do. And what Paul is simply saying here is, listen, I've been given a stewardship. I've been given a responsibility to be a servant in the church to speak the word of God in all of its wonder and all of its beauty. My goal, my job, my responsibility, my task is to present the word of God to you in all of its fullness. Not just the good, but the bad. See, we want the good parts. We don't want the bad parts. We don't want people speaking truth into our lives. Listen, if we're going to be faithful people of God, if I'm going to be a faithful minister, 
and are going to be faithful missionaries and people like that, we have got to adhere fully to the Word of God to know and understand what God would want and what He would have. And we need to preach and teach the fullness of the Word of God. I can't just preach what I want to preach and go sit in my office and pick out a text that is going to make people feel good. When I read a text 20 times during the week, and I read the commentaries, and I read all the things, I leave going, oh my, what do I need to do in my own life? What do I need to change in my own life? How is this affecting me? That's how it affects me. And what we have to do, we have a responsibility, we have a stewardship to proclaim and teach the Word of God in all of its fullness. That's why we teach on heaven and hell. That's why we we hold to the sanctity of life, morality, and marriage, and relationship. That's why we hold to all of these wonderful truths, because God has given us a stewardship. God has entrusted us with the very principles and power of God in the Word of God to be able to go out and proclaim and preach it. We stand on the Word of God and nothing else. That's why we have elders and teachers and people who teach and share fully the Word of God and all of its fullness to people. And the reason is because there's false teachers out there. That's what was happening in the book of Colossae. There was this idea in chapter 2 that, well, maybe there are some hidden things that we need to do in order for us to be complete, in order for us to be perfect, in order for us to, to achieve this deeper level of spirituality. Maybe what we need to do is we need to get in touch with other things. We need to get in touch with the mystical union. Maybe there's some angels out there or people who've spoken to angels and we need to embrace them. Or maybe there's some things that I need to be doing. Or maybe I need to eat this or eat that or not eat this or touch this. Or I need to go to this festival or go to this kind of worship place. And what I'll do is when I do that, I'm going to come and understand this deeper level of mystery that God will want for our life. That's what the people of Colossae were being taught. And when you look at the Bible and when you look at the Old Testament, yeah, there is a mystery from the Old Testament, right? We don't fully understand everything. There were some things revealed in the Old Testament, declared, prophesied in the Old Testament that they didn't understand, that we didn't fully understand, even now, things like this. We, they didn't understand, we know now, they didn't fully understand that the Messiah, God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, would be the one who would come in the incarnation to save us from our sins. They didn't have a full grasp of that. They didn't know the name of the forerunner of the, the Messiah, John the Baptist. They didn't know who Jesus would be born to. They didn't know any of this. So they didn't know about the nation of Israel being hardened at this particular point in time. They didn't know about the church. All of these things come as an unfolding of God's word to all of us. There were things proclaimed in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in the New Testament. They were living in the midst of that. And what Paul talks about is a a mystery. What's the mystery? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, I believe, speaks specifically to the mystery that Paul is talking about in Colossians. Notice what he says. This mystery is that through the gospel, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, all about Jesus... This gospel, the Gentiles, those of outside of Judaism, are heirs together with Israel. All of a sudden, we have this idea, you have the nation of Israel, you have Paul, and now there's this inclusion of pagan people coming alongside of Jewish people into what is called the body of Christ. Members together of one body and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. The mystery is actually Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the only benefit 
that the Jewish people had is they had the oracles, they had the Old Testament, they had the patriots, they had all of these wonderful teachings that pointed them to the Messiah. And you and I have the unveiling of God's word in the New Testament that teaches us about the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and how Jesus actually fulfilled that promise. Mystery is this, that we're all part of the body of Christ, each one of us. Listen, the church is not about politics. Politics are important, but it's not about a political party. It's not about race, gender. It's, it's, it's about Jesus, life, death, burial, and resurrection, and ultimately putting our faith, our confidence, our trust in Jesus. And you and I have been given a stewardship to teach, preach, and live out that message. I have been given that responsibility. You have been given that responsibility. Do you understand that? This isn't just for big people, pastor people. This is for all of us. All of us are ambassadors of Christ. All of us have been given a stewardship. You have been given a stewardship. I have been given a stewardship. Are you fulfilling your stewardship in the body of Christ? And I am so glad to see so many people serving in ministry in a variety of ways at Hope Church. You cannot do this with one person, two people, five people. We need the collective energy of all the people in the body of Christ in order that we would come together, steward what God has entrusted to us so that we can learn and grow. There's a a quote that one man said, and and I really like it, and I want you to just listen to it and, and think about your life. It says this, Your life is like a scene from a movie or a chapter from a novel. Without the rest of the story, it will never make any sense. What that means is this, that my life is part of a story. Your life is part of a story. The bigger story is what? The bigger story is of Jesus. And my life and your life fits in this picture of who Jesus is and what he's called us to do in the body of Christ. That's why in chapter 3, verse 17, he says this, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all in the name of Jesus for his honor and for his glory. So we need to be people in a church that endures. We need to be people who are stewarding the resource that God has given to us. Number three of this, are you growing? Are you growing? We're supposed to grow. We're supposed to mature. We're supposed to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Ultimately, that's what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 28. We proclaim him admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. What I want to point out in this verse is a couple of things. Number one, notice how he goes from I to, to we. He, he changed. In other words, this isn't, this isn't just about him. This is about Epaphroditus, and this is Epaphras, and Timothy, and Tyche. It's about all of the other people. It's about all of us. And what do we do? We are proclaiming the message of Jesus. We're proclaiming who he is and what he has done for us. In other words, God is using all of us in the body of Christ to grow and mature in Christ. It's not just one person. It's all of us collectively together. I memorized verse 28 in the New American Standard Bible. Now, let me see if I can give it to you. It says, we proclaim, we proclaim everyone, teaching everyone, admonish everyone, that we may present everyone complete in Christ. The way that I memorized it was everyone. Three times in the New American Standard, the idea of everyone. In other words, it's all people. It's not for a select group of people. It's for all of us. Every one of us are on a journey of maturing and growing in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. And who do we proclaim? 
not Paul, not the pastor, not the music director, not the children's ministry, not social causes, not political causes. We proclaim him, him, a person who went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. You and I have the incredible privilege of being able to to proclaim the message of Jesus. Life, death, burial, and resurrection, who he is and what he's done. And, And notice what he says here. We proclaim him. We herald the name of Jesus. Second thing, we admonish. Nobody wants to admonish. Nobody wants to tell someone that you're doing something wrong. But don't we need people to come alongside us and say, you know what, Clint? Are, are you doing all right over here? Are you treating your wife? Are you treating your family? Do, are we fearful of admonishing, coming alongside in a gentle and loving way, saying, how, how are you doing? You're proclaiming Jesus. Do we need to be admonished to righteousness? That's what Paul says. We proclaim, we admonish, and then he goes on and says we teach the fullness of who God is and what he's done for us. What Paul is saying is, listen, we need to be a growing church. We need to be growing people focused on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, who he is. We're going to proclaim him. We're going to admonish people to fall in line with him. We're going to teach people who he is. Endure, steward, grow. Number four, labor. We need to labor. Look at verse 29. To this end... I labor, struggling with all this energy which so powerfully works. I mean, let me ask you, what do you labor for in life? I mean, what are you laboring for right now? Some of you are laboring maybe for retirement, laboring a hobby, labor at your job, spend 40, 50 years. Some of you are laboring in school. You're laboring to get out of school. Teachers are laboring. I mean, we, we labor for a lot of things. God has called us uh, to use our gifts, our talents, and our abilities in a in a variety of ways. Paul says this, to this I labor. I labor to teach, preach the word of God in all of its fullness so that people would mature and grow in Christ. Labor means this. It means, it means hard work. It means toil. It means hard work. Struggle has the idea of an athlete in, a, in, in a, an arena and, and struggling and agonizing together, working hard. What, what Paul is describing here is not for the faint of heart. It's hard work. If you feel like ministering and serving among people and tasks and all of that is difficult and challenging, I I, I point you to Paul and what he says, I'm laboring and I'm struggling together because this is hard work. The idea of struggle, Paul used that same word when he described at the end of his life his ministry from 2 Timothy. Notice what he wrote. He says this, I have fought. That's the idea of struggle. I have labored. I have struggled. The good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Let me commend to you many of the people of Hope Church. You know, I, I don't do this often, but I, I just want to do this this morning. We have uh, our, our leaders, our elders who, who work hard and minister hard. Two of them are not feeling well today. They're here because they love you, they care for you. We have teachers and children and youth and adults who minister and serve. We have people that show up here all of the time. What are they doing? They're, they're laboring, they're ministering, they're using their gifts, their talents, their abilities in a way that we fully don't even imagine sometimes. 
They're, they're, they're laboring for the cause of Christ, music ministers. And I am so grateful because that's how we grow. That's how we mature. That's how we endure when we come together. When everyone, when everyone is doing their part in the family of God. And, and God uses you, and God uses you, and God uses you in a way that I cannot do that. That's why we need each other in the body of Christ. Do you know something important in this verse? I hope you didn't miss it. To this end, I labor, struggling with what? All my energy? No. All his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want to give my life, we want to give our lives to Christ in such a way that we are absolutely dependent upon him because he wants to work his grace through us. That's what he wants to do. It's all for the glory of Jesus. And I want to labor, and I want to struggle, and I want to serve, and I want to do that not in my own strength, but dependent upon the Spirit of God and who He is and what He has done for us. My salvation is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, putting my faith, my trust, my confidence in Him. My labor is dependent upon Jesus and who He is and faithfully using my gifts, my talents, and my abilities. One last thing, then we're done. This will only take just a minute. Ready to endure? Individually as a church? Are we stewarding the gifts and the talents and abilities that God has given to us? Are we growing in the way that God would want us to grow? Through the changes in life that we're going through, are we laboring in the way that God? The last thing takes us back to verse 24, and I actually could have begun with this. Notice what he says, I, I, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I rejoice in what was suffered for you. Over and over in this letter, Paul talks about giving thanks, being grateful for who God is and what he's done. Remember, he suffered much of his life. He's in prison. He says, remember my chains. Remember the chains that are on my arm. I'm going to write this letter, but remember my chains. Over and over, he has this attitude of thankfulness. Chapter 3, verse 17, let me just read it. It says this, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Is, is, there a, is there an attitude of gratefulness in your life for who God is, for what Jesus has done for your life? Is, is that, that attitude when you, when you look around, you say, wow, I'm so grateful for that person, I'm so grateful for the Lord, for what he's done. You know, there, there's this attitude that should be prominent in the lives of Christians is that we love him, we care for him, and we are grateful for who he is. So what I believe that Paul does is he's looked at the supremacy of Christ and he says, listen, I'm going I'm to give you an example from my own life of how we partner and how we team together. We need to endure together. We need to steward the, the gifts, the talents, the abilities that God has given to us. You know, we need to grow together. We need to be as iron sharpens iron. We need to grow together. We need to labor, partner together, and we need to be grateful together. That's a beautiful picture of a healthy, growing church. And may that be something that we all endeavor. Father, I'm so grateful that at some particular point in time, many years ago, you brought me to faith. And Father, I am grateful for the people in this room who have experienced salvation through faith and trust in Jesus. And Father, we simply want to honor you. We want to glorify you. We want to live for you. And Father, I ask that you would continue to work in and through us. Lord, your word says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And Lord, that is what we labor to do. That is what we desire to do. Father, I thank you for my family. I 
thank you for my church friends. I thank you for the privilege that we have to be able to gather around your word and to encourage one another and to admonish one another and to build up and to love one another. Father, I thank you for that great privilege. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.